Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Security Insider podcast. And today we are continuing our series where we look at uh, the potential impacts for security of a pandemic. And our guest is Julian Talbot. Julian, uh, for those of you who don't know him, is an author, a security company director, consultant, investor, traveller, all sorts of things. Julian uh, was responsible for writing the security risk management body of knowledge. He's been involved in a wide range of things. And rather than prattling on, Julian, welcome to the show. I'm going to let you introduce yourself a little bit. John, thanks very much for having me on the show. It's, um, it's a, a great issue to talk about. And I, I've worked in security now for about 35 years and it's, uh, in risk management as well. During the 2003 SARS uh, epidemic, or SARS virus, I was the senior risk advisor for the Department of Health and Aging. Just before that, I was the head of security for a mining company in uh, Indonesia and then the head of security for the Australian Trade Commission and also now sort of lived and worked in five different continents. And look, I've seen a lot of different aspects of security from the, the front line to cyber to security management. And uh, pandemic is one of the issues that really is often un- underappreciated until it comes along. Absolutely. Now, you wrote an article for us with another gentleman back in 2014, at the time around the outbreak of the Ebola virus. But interestingly, in that article, you were talking about, you know, the management of an epidemic from a security point of view. You you must be some sort of prophet with a crystal ball because you mentioned in that article, and for those of you who haven't seen it, you can find it on the Security Solutions website. We reposted it recently. Um, you mentioned in that article that at the time Ebola was a concern, but it was not the concern. You said the big problem that we would have would be influenza if that ever became a, a major, yeah, I suppose, disease crossing borders. Why did you jump straight to influenza? John, thanks. I, I wish I could say I was a prophet or I could forecast so well, but I think it was really just looking at, at the numbers and looking at the, the nature of the virus. It's one of the issues with Ebola, and, and not to make light of Ebola, because Ebola is still an issue that's being very much um, alive and being dealt with in Africa right now. But because Ebola kills so quickly, um, you can isolate it relatively well. It's got a relatively short incubation period, and if you come down with it, it's a very uh, short matter of days whether you're going to live or die. So they can isolate that, whereas influenza, and particularly this new coronavirus, um, often has a longer incubation period. Now, the, uh, we don't yet know exactly where this came from. You know, there's, there's some animals suspected. A, a scaly anteater, actually, in China is the, the leading contender for this, but it's crossed over from the animal to the human in such a way that we there's still a huge range of uncertainty with it. But influenza, we've seen the Spanish flu. We've seen every year we see a seasonal flu come through and these are the sort of things which aren't fatal enough to, you know, with Ebola you might even, and there's a virus in Africa called the X-Virus which sometimes they find an entire village dead and it's coming so quickly it's killed everybody. Now with this coronavirus for example, um, new research says that it was basically circulating in the United States for six weeks before it was even detected and that's not that people weren't becoming ill but they were thinking it was a seasonal virus and because they had limited testing facilities, they were only testing for the cases where people had come from China or had otherwise been exposed to um, some site where it was known to be. So anybody who came into the doctor with a terrible fever or even ended up in ICU, 
simply wasn't being tested because it was at that time running at about $3,000 to run a test. So you can understand why it was able to move around undetected. And this is the, you know, I'm looking at a chart at the moment where we can look with retrospective clarity about how contagious and how deadly a range of um, diseases are. And with historical hindsight, we can do good statistical analysis and say, right, seasonal flu is like this. Polio is more contagious but less deadly. Smallpox is slightly more deadly and more um, contagious than seasonal flu. But we've got a huge area of unknown around coronavirus right now. This is part of the problem. So yeah. we, it's not as simple as saying, here are the, the measures to deal with it. Here's how we identify it. We're just in a new world with uh, trying to forecast and there's a few models we can talk about for how you do that from a security point of view. But, um, but that's basically why influenza, I think, is the biggest the biggest risk that we saw at the time we wrote that article. So based on your expertise, you, you spend a lot of your life looking at modelling and risk management models and all the rest of it to try and project worst possible outcomes and so forth. So let's just jump straight to the heart of it. If possible, what, in your opinion do you think we may be looking at as far as numbers, potential impact? You know, what are we going to see down the track and, and potentially for how long, if you can answer that? Uh, well, I can certainly answer that. Whether I'll be right or not, I don't know. But I can certainly tell you that I've been researching this a bit lately and um, to give you the broad numbers based on what we do know from the World Health Organization and CDC, and, and I'll round this through broad so the math is pretty easy. We're looking at probably, and the range is only 27 to 60%, but let's call it 40% of the population becomes infected. And it's 3.2 billion people who will be unable to work for, let's call it 30 days, which essentially is 14 days of illness and 14 days of quarantine. So you can look at that 30 days as a good mean case when you include quarantine. So that takes straight away just over 3% loss of productivity out of the workforce. And, and it's without thinking about acute, particular areas like a factory in China which builds parts for cars which can no longer come off the production line. But this broadly, we're talking 3.2% loss of productivity. Of the 3.2 billion people who are affected, 20% will need hospital care, potentially ITS, at 640 million. And based on the, the death rates, which obviously vary depending on the state of the healthcare in that whichever country you're in, we're talking 32 million people dying. So in a, in a country the size of Australia, that's 100,000 deaths. Now, now just to put this into context with um, for Australia, influenza causes 13,000 hospitalisations each year on average and 3,000 deaths. So that's essentially 30 times more dangerous. And we look at a global level because we're talking at areas like uh, Africa and many parts of the world where healthcare and nutrition are not as not as freely available, we're probably talking 60 times more lethal than the seasonal flu. And each year, the seasonal flu will kill between 300 and 600,000 people, according to the, the data. But this, we're now talking about something which is 60 times more fatal, potentially. Right. Um, so that's, you know, that's a huge impact, not just on the economy, obviously, or on people. But I mean, if, if you could take it as a, um, a silver lining, and I don't know, I'm not saying this in any sense lightly, but it's, um, we know the people who are most at risk, which is the elderly and the medically compromised. So whereas other viruses often take out children or adults of, of working age, we can focus a lot of the protective measures around you know, 
aged care centres about people who already know we've got some sort of a, a chest infection or a, a medical issue. Yeah. So that's perhaps one saving grace with it. But when you model this and the downstream implications, we're talking about, well, let me give you an example. Some studies were saying that um, the University of Oxford looked at the 2008 financial crash, which according to this modelling said there were additional 10,000 suicides in Europe and North America as a result of the stock market, loss of employment and what have you. So it's not just the physical, medical uh, toll, but this is a real emotional and um, psychological challenge for communities to deal with. Yeah. We're already seeing the impact that it's having on a lot of businesses in the way of uh, restaurants closing down, airlines going to the wall and other bits and pieces. But one of the things that made the 2008 financial crisis so challenging was that its effects were felt for years and years and years. The global financial crisis itself went on for at least two to three years and then the flow on effect sort of continued for a year or two after that. I I wouldn't expect, and I could be completely ignorant here, but I wouldn't expect that we're going to see the same longevity with this kind of thing. I mean, China's already, if we can believe what the the Chinese government is saying, are already starting to see a reduction in the number of reported cases. Based on your modelling and what you're reading, how long do you think this might continue for? That's a a great question, John. I think that at the moment... A lot of it, we, so we moved away from containment, which is, it's already broken containment, which is strategy number one with a pandemic. And, and one of the reasons that uh, World Health Organization has been reluctant to use the P word is because in different countries, they're at different stages. And when you declare a pandemic, there are crisis management plans which come into effect, which may or may not be the appropriate response. So so containment is broken out and, it, and it's in about 50 or more nations, you know, potentially from what we know about that. It's circulating globally now, and we're into the mitigation. And if and it takes about eighteen months typically to create a vaccine, there are some companies working on a um, a new plug and play model of a vaccine, which you can click it into a series of molecules, which they're saying eventually may be a six weeks to create a new vaccine for future pandemics. But that technology is not there yet, so we're now looking eighteen months. Which and a northern hemisphere is in, in winter at the moment, just coming out into summer. So. If we can delay it by you know, reducing public gatherings, by more washing hands, by all the, the good hygiene measures, um, personal separation, then that means that it will likely, it's unknown yet, but generally viruses and influenza-type viruses are not as effective or not as um, viable in summertime. So that's the strategy at the moment is to reduce the effects and the infection until at least we have time to develop a vaccine. Now, of course, the Southern Hemisphere is coming into winter, so that's a different kettle of fish. But the markets in terms of um, financial markets are looking at this and saying, okay, well, I mean, the Australian stock market collapsed 10% today and uh, the US market's likely to follow. So there is already a sense that there is um, a panic would be out of stating it, but we're seeing a financial impact because of supply chains, because people can't work. But if I was to... I guess I think we're talking about 18 months for a vaccine and we're talking about a slow spread where people become used to this idea that if it's contained and if we understand that the virus is generally has a a relatively low mortality rate if it's managed effectively, um, you get this sense of threat fatigue, which is well known in the security industry, the idea that when you move to perhaps a new dangerous country for the first two or three weeks, you're hyper alert to it. 
I yep. think we'll see the same thing with coronavirus where people say, okay, well, I'm used to it. It's now a fact of life. We're now expecting that it will spread through the world. Most people will get it. And you know what? I'm just going to keep going to work for as long as I can. I'm going to put in place work from home arrangements. And hospitals, businesses will learn how to work with that. So you know, I think we'll, from a financial point of view, I think the market over the next three to four weeks is going to start to factor in. It's already factored in future loss of earnings, but I think you'll see some confidence come back, which, which would be a good thing because one of the knock-on effects is that um, unemployment, and, you know, for example, in the United States at the moment, there are 6 million people, it's in a country of 330 million or so, 6 million people are already in at least 90-day default on their car loans. So there's not much wriggle room. Most Americans, for example, over 50% don't have enough savings to be able to deal with a $400 urgent bill. So there's not much wiggle room in most of the world and you know, America's certainly better off, say, than Africa or most of Asia in terms of savings and support and help. So I think the worst is not yet upon us, but we'll probably see things start to improve, let's say, um, in April. Okay. Um, we're already starting to see supply chain issues kicking in here in Australia, at least with, you know, panic buying for things like toilet paper, which for the life of me, I cannot begin to understand why people think toilet paper is the most essential item they need to buy. There's throwaway lines I could use about that with most people being full of something. Um, but uh, anyway... Do you, from the point of view of security, obviously you wrote in your last article that the Commonwealth arrangements are fairly strong. My understanding is that we have something in place here in Australia, which is a very watered down version, if I'm reading it correctly, of almost martial law called the Commonwealth um, Coordination Act or Commonwealth Coordination Arrangements, where basically the government can take over um, to ensure the continuation of essential services of things like electricity, water, medical care, and all the rest of it. But but what does that look like? Are you able to talk us through a little bit what happens if the government says, okay, this is getting out of control, we need to take control of all of this? Sure. Uh, well, firstly, I don't think it will likely come to that in Australia. We've got uh, a good system for research and education and a largely compliant um, population, but in a worst case scenario, the government can call upon uh, defence forces, for example, for uh, an aid to civil authorities. They can also step in and commandeer a lot of facilities, take control largely of you know, electricity and utilities and essential services. I think that's fairly unlikely because the, the people who are most qualified to operate it are already operating it. But when you see a situation where people simply aren't coming to work, that's when you need to find. Um, manpower, manpower. You need to find people who have the skills, and the military is, is likely the main source of that. You've also got to remember one of these scenarios is that everybody's concerned not just about keeping essential services running, but keeping their own family safe. So, um, how we manage that is a bit of a, a challenge, but there are some great arrangements in place already at senior levels. We've seen, for example, how we Australia responds with the bushfires. That chain of command and control is is very clearly articulated. There are national emergency arrangements in place. And, and Australia's learned a lot from this. We've had sort of SARS and MERS. We've had a few um, bird flus. We've had a few different, I won't call them pandemics as such, but epidemics. And we are well placed. We also have emergency stockpiles at secure locations 
some of the drugs which can be used to treat it and some of the, the best research at the moment is suggesting that although we don't have a, um, a vaccine as yet, by treating them with antiretrovirals such as are used for HIV combined with drugs like Tamiflu, which is essentially a, designed to support your immune system, um, they are being effective, at least in preliminary trials. One of the big challenges of, of all this is having enough people in medical supplies and I think from a government point of view, there's really the the hospitals and healthcare system and essential infrastructure. So, you know, certainly, I, I, when I think about the toilet paper stockpiling, for example, you know, I, I'm with you. I think that's one of the least important things you could possibly stockpile. As a, you know, we used to have newspapers for that sort of thing, and in many parts of the world, they just use their left hand and a bit of water. But it's things like water, which if water stops being supplied to the homes, then you start to see other secondary infections like typhoid, cholera, dysentery, you know, all sorts of um, stomach bugs. Just from pure hygiene, you start to see perhaps if garbage isn't being collected, rubbish piling up in the streets and then rats in the streets, and then we have a whole lot of downstream consequences. And this is like where government and a lot of the contingency plans are designed to focus on those essential services, electricity, water, um, heating and cooling, not so much of a, an issue in Australia, but certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, winter heating and uh, gas and these sort of things are, can, can have dire consequences, can be deadlier than the uh, actual virus if the heat goes out. Yeah. So Australia is, is very well placed from a world point of view, both economically and in terms of training and, and stockpiles. And I mean, if people are really that worried about toilet paper, then heck, we've got a whole heap of back issues of security solutions you can always get hold of. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, as far as security companies are concerned, you know, are we expecting to see that, or is it reasonable to foresee that, you know, they're going to start needing to provide security uh, to enforce things like you wrote about, you know, maybe maintaining quarantines at, at or, you know, security at quarantine venues such as hospitals, um, you know, uh, shopping centres or food venues where people might be sort of panic buying food and there needs to be controls over who can get what and all the rest of it. What do you see the role of security being in this kind of sort of pandemic environment? John, there's so many implications for security in, in this environment. I think you, you could take the, the simple example, which is crowd control at, um, or even incident control, if you think of it, a quarantine facility, but managing queues at hospitals, at shopping centres, making sure that the... Um, and, and Australians generally are fairly calm in a crisis, but the, the implication when your child is ill and you've seen something maybe on social media, which is another issue I'll come to in a moment, which says, you know, you must buy echinacea, it's the only thing that will work. Then you you start to see these runs on it and people can become unruly. So there's, there's almost like a just basic queue management or personnel management at a, a level, which is largely about communication. I'm not talking about bringing out National Guard batons and um, shields. I'm talking about being proactive in terms of saying, right, we're going to set up an orderly queue here. So we know there's probably going to be 200 people turn up tomorrow morning. We're going to plan for that and we're going to work around it. We're going to have enough people to do it and communicate effectively. But one of the other issues with, from point of view of physical security like that is that, and I was disappointed when I was in the health department, I think I managed to have a little bit of influence there. And, and we're now much better and the understanding and the research is much better, but it's around um, immune support systems. So one of the, you know, after washing your hands, 
probably the most important thing is maintaining your immune system. And that comes down to things, really three things, good rest, um, some moderate exercise and good nutrition. And part of the, the 2003 plan was basically you'd put doctors and nurses into a hospital and security staff and warders, um, orderlies and everybody, and you would say, okay, now you're there, we're going to lock you down, we're going to take you away from your families, we're going to ask you to work 30-hour shifts and then sleep for two hours at a time. And essentially you were creating a scenario where people would be exhausted and their immune system would be compromised on the job. So from a security point of view, really to think about how you roster people and how you can reassure your staff or your security personnel that their families are okay and someone's looking after them. And so if you have to keep them at a work site as part of a quarantine process or simply because transportation or long hours, then you have to be able to say, okay, your family is safe and these are your mandated rest hours. So you're going to get eight hours of sleep each night or as much rest as they possibly can. We're going to find a way that you've got new, good nutrition so you're not eating out of vending machines. Um, you know, we know there are, there's good research that says that um, meditation is a good stress relief, even just a 10-minute um, sit-down, calming, breathing exercise because you're potentially dealing with quite a high-pressure situation. And, and as human beings, we just need to have a little bit of um, reassurance that we're okay, our families are okay, and our immune system is okay. But, you know, we, I, I could probably touch, too, on some of the issues with masks. I think that people are stockpiling not just toilet paper, but face mask, which is um, doubly unproductive for, for two reasons. First, because the, most of the masks don't work for the virus. For example, a, an N95 mask is designed to filter out particles of up to three microns, um, or particles greater than three microns, whereas coronavirus is smaller than one or two microns. And yes, it's saliva uh, or perhaps moisture particles which will be on the outside, but eventually they dry. And so if you, you're using a face mask which is actually coated with other people's um, virus, then it's actually not effective. And, and you know, nor particularly is a, uh, it's certainly not as effective as keeping a two or three metre separation. Yeah. So by stockpiling his mask, not only do you not have something that's not effective for you personally, unless maybe you've got a cold and you want to contain your sneezes and protect people, have a, certainly a, a small effect there. But you're actually stockpiling masks, which medical professionals need to use. And you know, they've got a short life. They're not like you can reuse them or you can wear them for an entire day. Um, you need to be constantly swiping new fresh masks uh, because they're, they're effects. So stockpiling some of these things, it's, a lot of it's about information, and that's where the government really has a role to play. And, and I think they're, they're doing a, a, I'd say they're doing a much better job, particularly good job now that probably could use a little bit more media exposure. But the information, if you go to the websites, is is excellent. And yeah. the lack people are often not using the information that is available from good government websites like the Australian government or the CDC or the UK. Um, so from that point of view of manpower management it's about making sure that the people understand you know your security officers understand what the message is for them and what the message is that they need to give to other people in terms of management uh, I could probably talk to it's not when you come to social media and you look at um, I'm going to touch here on the cyber security now there's a different profile obviously if you work as a security manager or in cyber security you, you can often work from home or you have a lot of control over your environment typically you might be in an office environment. Frontline security in terms of physical security and managing people is very much, you are the boundary line between perhaps a quarantine or 
you know, the outside and the inside of the hospital and you are very exposed with limited controls to it. But from a cyber point of view, um, a lot of disinformation gets around. You know, I've seen some memes which are um, well-meaning people, I think, are saying, go out and buy masks or whatever it might be. And I see a lot of chatter on the internet, do our masks effective? And fortunately, that word is getting out. But we saw the way that the Russians managed to influence uh, various elections in Cambridge Analytics story. So the power of social media and, and there are opportunities there, and it always happens in, in every circumstance when we have a, whether it's a cyclone or it's a bushfire, some individuals and some groups will try to take advantage of that with scams and with fake, you know, now we have fake news, fake messages, we have um, videos which can be fake. So there will be people from that point of view who are trying to take advantage of um, others' ignorance. And so, you know, phishing, for example, is a classic with emails. And if you see an email come through which looks like it's from a government source and it says, download this link to, you know, find new information about how to keep your family safe, that's a whole other world of, managing security in terms of a pandemic, which often we don't think of that. I think we've managed the, the idea of physical security and we're starting to get the idea about immune systems, but I'm not seeing much um, awareness of those some of the exploits which a pandemic makes available and people aren't thinking clearly and they're looking for cures information. Um, fake news is, is, is king, really. Yeah. Um. That's a really, really interesting point. And ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who are listening, we're at the half hour mark, so we're going to break here. But if you listen to the next podcast, I'm going to continue this conversation with Julian and we're going to have a chat about cybersecurity in a pandemic. All right. Well, look, Julian, thank you very much for your time. It's been enlightening chatting to you. Uh, and for those people who want to find out more, don't forget to go and visit Julian's website or check out his new book. Um, and if you want more podcasts like this one, don't forget you can go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, the Android Store, and so on. Julian, thanks again for being on the show, and we look forward to speaking to you next time.